You're listening to TIP. One thing that's always come really natural to me before I even knew what a mentor was or that you called a mentors was there's all these people, no matter what you're trying to do, if it's build a real estate company, if it's be a good dad, if it's, you know, be better in your faith, whatever it may be, there's always there's people around that have, that have already walked the walk and they've already done the thing successfully. And so for me, it's always been really natural to go, well, why wouldn't I just seek those people out and ask them how they did it? And not just how they did it, but what are all the mistakes you made along the way? Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Chris Powers to talk about his journey from purchasing his first rental at the age of 17 to becoming chairman of Fort Capital and host of the entrepreneurial podcast, The Fort. We dive into the sacrifices Chris has had to make to get to where he is today, the struggles along the way, the role of mentorship and faith in his life, what he learned from Sam Zell on how to be a great investor, and so much more. Chris is a serial entrepreneur with more than 18 years of real estate development and investment experience. He founded Fort Capital, and to date, the company has invested over $2 billion in Class B industrial, commercial, multifamily, student housing, residential, and land development projects throughout the state of Texas and the Sun Belt. He is also the host of an entrepreneurial podcast, The Fort, with Chris Powers, and has published over 300 episodes of raw business conversations with business leaders and entrepreneurs. I loved Chris's transparency and openness to share about all aspects of his life in this interview, and I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. And so, without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Chris Powers. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your hosts, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me on today's show is Mr. Chris Powers from the Fort Podcast and Fort Capital. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Patrick. I'm excited to be here. I am super excited. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, both your podcast, following you on Twitter. I've learned a ton from you. I wanted to jump in right off the bat. You had Sahil Bloom on the Fort Podcast, and he had this quote, or he said, there's a steep price to pay to reach the top 0.01% in any given field. And I wanted to just kind of start off hearing about the sacrifices that Chris Powers has had to make to be Chris Powers. Yeah, I can answer this several ways, especially while you're younger. There's, it feels like there's more sacrifice from a standpoint of, I started my business in college and there was a lot of times that just not, you know, doing social activities or not just kind of being lazy and not doing much or enjoying free time, it occupies a ton of your time. And so there were just a lot of times growing up when I was probably out working and and really building when I had an opportunity to be doing nothing. And I think especially in college, uh, if you're fortunate to have some downtime, it's really the last time in your life where you really do. And then you're kind of off to the races. If you're going to build any type of career, whether it's in business or sports or just anything you want to be great at. And so I look back and I think I sacrificed some of my college opportunity to do less 
Um, I put a lot into it. But then really, once things really got going, I mean, that just amplified a lot. And for me, I got so addicted for a while to the game of building business and making money and really growing the heck out of our business that I really, you know, candidly lost sight of some of the things that were really important to me along the way, family, friends, relationships, my health, just things like that. I think you can get such in tunnel vision and the world is kind of continuing to push you and cheer you on that you can just often forget maybe what's important. So there's a lot of time sacrifice. There's just also, I think, the sacrifice of like losing your way a little bit, if that makes sense, and and neglecting a lot of the personal site. And then just like the mind space, even if you're sitting there doing nothing, sometimes not being able to enjoy and smell the roses because you are always thinking about the company, the opportunity, your investors, the next deal, somebody you just hired. You know, I think a lot of people that have never built a business or started a company or really whether it's a business, you see it with athletes, you see it with top performers in whatever field they're in, their mind just never really stops thinking about it. And so you'll hear often like, well, hey, once you're off work, you should be off work. And that's really easy to say, but you find it almost categorically across the board. People's minds kind of never lose sight of this kind of mission that they're on. And I don't know if it's something I gave up, but it's something I certainly feel even to this day. It is a constant struggle for me to be in the present and not be distracted by things going on in, in my business or in some of our investments or, you know, really anything around the business or the business world. I was listening to your interview that Eric Jorgensen did with you. And he was, you were mentioning that you constantly feel behind the eight ball. Like you constantly are feeling like you've got to be doing something. So I wanted to touch on this a little later, but you're kind of jumping into it now, just crashing and burning. Like, you know, playing these status games can get, they are alluring. Our culture does promote them. You do get a lot of accolades for them. But it, it comes at a cost, I think. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about like playing the status games, succeeding at a very high level, but crashing and burning, maybe not those accolades fulfilling you like maybe you thought they would. You know, I think you want what you can have. And so there always seems to be, at least in business, but I would imagine this is another thing. There's always another level to the game. Uh, there's different people in that level. There's folks that you aspire to be like. But if you really look at the people that are, if you take a step back and what, you know, something that I started to do more of was allow really older men into my life, whether they were 20 years older, 30 years older, sometimes 40 years my senior. And you really start asking them questions about what should I be thinking about right now? And initially I was going to them with questions, thinking they were going to give me like better business answers about how to run my business better, how to, you know, make more money or get to the next level. And what you actually start to find, especially the older of the person that you talk to is they often will tell you what not to do and some of the regrets that they've had. And there's just very few, if not any, I certainly have never met anybody, especially like very much later in life, call it 70s, 80s, 90s, that will be like, hey, I really wish I had worked harder. It was worth it to miss all of my family's events and my kids growing up. And it was worth, you know, not maintaining friendships. Like it was worth all of it. 
But the truth is none of them actually would also say that they set out to do any of those things. Those were just byproducts of focusing and just empire building and chasing status and kind of trying to be really great in one thing. And so what I found was this just like, okay, you had people telling me not to do this, but then I also found none of them were actual, like while they were young, they weren't thinking they were doing it. It wasn't till after the fact that it became obvious to them that maybe they had made a misstep along the way. And so, you know, again, I think I'm a byproduct of a lot of great folks in my life, including my, especially men that have really poured into me and really helped me understand what a man goes through and what a father goes through. And whether it was my father or just a lot of men around me that didn't want to see me make those mistakes. And I was your typical candidate for push the whole world aside, business build and empire build for as long as you can, and then enjoy the riches and spoils later in life. And again, maybe I was lucky. I don't really know, but there's just been a a lot of people and We can talk about faith and other things if that's important, but they're just taking all that into consideration. It became imperative to me that not that you couldn't build a great business and have a lot of fun doing it and really stretch for big goals, but it had to always be kept in context and perspective. And I think for me, if anything, now I kind of have this framework of guardrails where I kind of know if I'm going off the edge, because like I said, I don't think you're like fully cured of it. You're constantly trying to test the boundaries. It's kind of the DNA of how I believe I was built. But now I've got a lot of, again, people, but kind of guardrails that would kind of say, hey, slow down a little bit or don't do this or you're probably overkill here. And it's just not as important to me. Like, again, there's just nobody you'll meet on their deathbed that's like, I just wish I had made a lot more money and stayed at the office a lot longer in my 30s, 40s and 50s. You mentioned your dad, and I, I wanted to talk about the, you wrote a Medium article, basically honoring him. Uh, he passed away how many years ago at this point? It was 11 years this year. 11 years, yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the lessons you've learned from him. He's made a huge impact on your life. I know he went through a career change that was pretty formative to you. Sounded like an amazing guy just from reading that article. So I, I wanted to just kind of touch on some of those lessons that you've learned from him, what it was like growing up with him, and then just how he's influenced your life and business career. Yeah, I hit the lottery, the jackpot with a father. And I know, you know, I wish everybody could say that. But for me, that was a, a gift and a blessing that I was given was a father that, you know, even 11 years later, maybe how I would judge some of, or not judge, but how I would uh, describe maybe what a good father is, is 11 years later, I still have like no doubt what he would tell me in certain situations. He had a pretty incredible moral compass and really never wavered from it. And I think one of the things I appreciate now that I'm a parent is how easy it is to kind of stray from your moral compass, maybe to make parenting easier, to not have to discipline or to just be the cool parent or just kind of let things go. And there were just lots of things growing up that in hindsight, it drove me crazy as a kid. But as I sit here today, I'm so thankful that he just wouldn't let me do some things or he would remind me that when I did something wrong, that it wasn't right. He always encouraged me to you know, work hard and he was a huge supporter of mine. I mean, I, I to this day, there's nobody that kind of believed in me more or which I think is is huge and critical. And so he was just a very great voice of reason. He was a, a consistent, steady hand in my life. And again, there were periods where if you had interviewed me while I was, you know, in my teenage years, I probably, I was maybe a lot more agitated, but 
I think that's a sign of great leadership is knowing kind of what your values and your principles are and sticking to those even when things aren't easy. And when you have a a son or a daughter that's an, a teenager that thinks they know it all and they're making life hectic around the house, it's easy to want to kind of bend on something to just make life easier. And my dad just wouldn't do that. And so, you know, there's a there's a letter up on the wall over there. Three days before he died, he sent me an email that I didn't know he was about to pass away. It was a tragic accident. But we had this banker that basically had come to me. I was very young and was like, hey, I can get you this loan, but you kind of have to do X, Y, and Z. And it was very much a gray area. It wasn't illegal, but it just kind of wasn't great. But he was like, hey, everybody does this. But it required my dad help me out with something. Basically, he had to like lend me money for 30 days or gift me money for 30 days. And then I would just give it back to him. But it would show that I had cash on the balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. And um, anyway, he basically wrote me this long email and was like, I know every and the gist of it is I know everybody does this, but that doesn't make it right. The world needs more people that are willing to do the right thing, even when nobody's looking, even when the world tells you it's okay. Like if you know it's not the right thing to do, it's not the right thing to do. And he basically just ended it and said, you know, I I hope you can keep your head high and and know that you did the right thing. And the long term, if you do that over and over and over and over and over again, that will be a great life, even if in the short term, it creates a little bit of pain. And I never knew that would be the last email he sent me, but I have it printed up on my wall. And it's just little things like that that I think were were critical and have just stuck with me for so long. And he was a, he went to Harvard, was a lawyer. And at maybe like you, when you were six or seven, he ended up going back to medical school. So you went through this gap of, of years where you kind of were up here on the socioeconomic scale when he was a lawyer, then kind of dropped a little bit in terms of, you know, he just wasn't making much money. I would imagine like putting himself through school, like it had to be a rough period, but I really give, I mean, he pursued his passion. It's what he really wanted to do. And he totally changed course at he was what in his thirties, right? With kids and wife and he was like 37. Yeah. It's uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. I think you nailed it. We basically decided we were going to live. I don't know what you'd call it, but I, I can tell you we made $130,000 over an eight year stretch. When you combine four years of medical school of zero and then a whopping $30,000 a year for four years, he had money saved you know, from being a lawyer. So we had that and some support from my grandparents. But overall, it was a total life shift. The irony is it was some of the best years of my life. We lived in Lubbock, Texas. I was young, played a lot of sports. But yeah, we we changed our socioeconomic. And, and one thing I've thought about over the years, years that I think was also interesting is, but a lot of our friends and people we knew remained at a different socioeconomic class, the one we had come from. And so you kind of went from like, Hey, we're, we're all kind of living the same life. We can kind of travel the same. We can kind of, you know, do the same rituals and have the, you know, do the same things. And then all of a sudden you can't with the same people that you always have done that with. And I think whether I was You know, I was young, so I don't think I really knew what I was observing at the time, but it became apparent to me that there had been a shift. And it also became apparent to me that the shift really came from, you know, money or not having the money or because they had money and we didn't, there was a difference. I remember my mom, a lot of times they, they treat medical students and residents pretty poorly. They work them like, you know, just forever. They're on call all the time. They're always tired. Doctors aren't 
not all doc- doctors are, are can be great, but trust me, there's a lot that are just very not pleasant people because they're just run through this medical system that, that never stops. And so it was this combination of not making money and then never really being able to be around uh, and always being controlled by the hospital schedule. And so I just remember as a kid, a lot of the ne- rhetoric around the house was like, you got to make more money and you can't let somebody control what you do. And those, I think, were some of the early seeds that were sown in me of like, okay, this is what I'm never going to depend on anybody. I'm going to start a business at an early age and I'm going to try and make as much money as I can. I'm really not a big spender, but it was more for this idea that it would create freedom and margin in my life. But yeah, those were really interesting years. I think that the beautiful part of it is my dad also taught me through that, you know, you're only going to live and he would say this all the time, you're only going to live one life. And so for him, he was okay giving up a comfortable career that clearly had more upside to it, had already gone to law school, had already made partner and was willing to put that all away to take the really less popular path, making a lot less money, working incredibly hard hours, trying to raise a family, all because he believed like that I only got one shot at this life. I don't want to have any regrets. And so it's been later in life that I've uh, appreciated that opportunity. And I'm kind of going through some of the same things right now. Uh, Business has been great, but there's things in my life I want to pursue that didn't necessarily check the like build a billion dollar business box. And it's like, hey, I'm only going to have one chance to do these things. Uh, I don't get to come back again and do it. And so it adds to my decision making process. And really, you know, I think it's just been a huge kind of positive in my life to think that that's possible. Yeah, you're fortunate. You're in a position now to kind of evaluate and reevaluate and look at some of the decisions he made and alter course. Potentially, you've stepped away from Fort Capital a little bit, right? You're chairman, no longer involved in the day-to-day stuff. And we'll get into that. But I wanted to hear too, just kind of sticking in with your dad and some of his, like, I remember you talking about this story about at 13, hopping the border to go to Mexico and hanging out with your brother, maybe, and drinking beers in a bar. And, you know, there was a series of events that your dad, you ended up graduating high school in three years, right? But that wasn't because you were like Mr. Academic. It was because he put the hammer down, right? And said, you're not going to this big European trip. Can you share with us a little bit about some of that stories? You've done your research. Well done. I can't remember where I said that, but that is 100% true. So the, the story there is, again, back to principles was like lying was just not an option. He really didn't care if I got in trouble or did something stupid or but I just like lying about it was was just not an option. And so as a dumb, I was a rebellious kind of high school kid, to be totally honest with you. I think there's a lot of people that didn't, I was probably going to go one of two directions, either take the path I took or just totally become, you know, a bum. I had, I liked having fun. I liked going out. I had, I just, that was a big part of my life at the time. And so that also came with me consistently like sneaking things by my parents so that they didn't think I was always out and about. And so basically I got on this role where I would just kind of lied a few times about where I was. And one of the times I had gone over to Mexico, which again, I was allowed to go to Mexico. I just wasn't allowed to go to Mexico that day. And I got caught and I lied about it. And basically my dad said, if you, that trip was this huge Europe trip that everybody looks forward to from the time they're in like sixth grade. You just kind of know that after your sophomore year, there's this, this, this huge trip. And he basically just said like, you do it one more time. He had already grounded me. Like that wasn't really working. I was sneaking out. I'm probably 
making myself sound a lot worse, but it's the truth. And he's just said, if you do it again, you're not going to Europe. And sure enough, like two weeks later, I tried sneaking out or I can't even remember. I think I went to Mexico and I got caught and I lied about where I was. And he was like, you're not going. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning. Usually it's like parents will say that, but are they really going to enforce it? And he enforced it. He's like, you are not going. So all my best friends, this trip we'd been looking to for four years, they all go to Europe. And I basically said, well, if you're keeping me here, I'm going to summer school all summer. I'm going to get enough credits to skip junior year. And I'm going straight from being a sophomore to being a senior. And I'm out of here. I can't live under this roof. And that's what I did. And the truth is, it was actually one of the best decisions I did, not for the reasons I did it, but getting out early and getting to TCU, I totally changed my life around. Again, I took college really seriously. I started a business, but people think sometimes I graduated high school in three years because I was some whiz kid and that really wasn't the case. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So let's get into that. TCU, you, you're 17 years old, 2004 maybe, I think, 2000, right around there. And you end up buying your first home, like at 17, right? And get involved in student housing. Talk to me about that. Like, How does a 17-year-old kid have the balls to get into 
real estate at that young age. Honestly, it reminds me, I mean, we'll touch on Sam Zell, but like, it reminds me a little of his story. Very similar. He got involved in student housing and just ran with it. And, uh, but I wanted to hear your story. So I think the answer is uh, the quick lesson is take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you at a period in time. And so this was 2004, this was pre great financial crisis. And I was probably one of the the stories of why the great financial crisis happened. I was fortunate to be buying good real estate around a Texas university that was growing, but I was also a 17 year old kid with like no money, no track record of having done this successfully and was having to put virtually zero down. I was actually getting cash back at closing. And so I got to TCU. We TCU had a lot of wealth and it became apparent to me pretty quickly that if I was going to be able to kind of socialize in the same way that a lot of my friends and fraternity brothers were going to be able to, like I had to make some money because it wasn't going to come from home. And, you know, getting like a typical minimum wage job was not going to also fund the bill either. I wanted money again, kind of for things trivial, like going to spring break and being able to travel and being able to buy kind of nicer clothes and things of that nature. And so anyway, I, I picked up the skiff, which was the TCU newspaper, and I saw Entrepreneur of the Year. And, and my really good friend, Adam Blake, who's still a great friend of mine to this day, had just won Entrepreneur of the Year for buying rental houses as like a sophomore. He was on the football team and had lost his scholarship and he was going to have to leave TCU. And he basically had this remarkable story of learning to make money in real estate. So anyway, I got to know him. He basically told me what to do. I read a couple books and the, basically it was like, go down to Countrywide Home Lending, which at the time was uh, still around. That was kind of one of the, you know, during the great financial crisis, everybody knew about Countrywide. They were making some of the worst loans out there, but I was a beneficiary of one of them that actually worked out and got a loan for 3% down, 6% cash back at closing leased it to some TCU students, some of my fraternity brothers, and was able to refinance the house not too short, not too long after, pull out cash and was kind of off to the races and, and steadily kind of did that throughout college. And we can, you know, we can get more into it. But I think the, the quick lesson there was, I'm not even sure if I was 17 today in today's environment, I could have pulled off what we pulled off then because loans weren't floating around like that. But it was kind of good timing and, and good opportunity. You know, at the same time, there's different opportunities for kids today. There wasn't the internet back then like we have it. Facebook wasn't even out until I think the end of my freshman year. So there's ways to make money today that we could have never dreamed of back then. But back then, that was a way to kind of make more than the average. And it really wasn't that difficult. And I started building from there. And, you know, almost 18 years later, here we are. So I wanted to touch on, is it Adam Blake? Was that his name? You're the guy that you, he was entrepreneur of the year. How did you befriend him? What were the books that maybe he recommended? Was he kind of willing to share his playbook with you? It, you know, it seems like real estate Twitter is like that. A lot of people sharing their playbook. Was he like that in 2004? He was as generous with his, I don't think he told me what books to read. I think I just found some like how to have a rental property. I don't even remember. People ask me all the time, like, what are the best real estate books you've ever read? And I just kind of learned by doing. I, I, I more have people that taught me along the way. I didn't read a ton of books, but I read one that was basically like rental properties for dummies, which is just like, what do I need to know to own a single family home? And I read that, but no, he was, I met him at a party and I asked him to go to lunch. We went to a Chipotle down on Hewlin here in Fort Worth. It's still around today. And he was really generous. I just kind of picked his brain. I'm like, how'd you do it? And 
he this he kind of told me and I'm how'd you fix the homes up and oh we have a crew and this is how I found my crew you know where'd you get the loan here's where I got the loan I was like could I get a loan he's like I'm pretty sure you could I'd go down and ask him and and these are the things I would tell him and be prepared to answer and it was it was probably an hour and a half lunch I can't quite remember but it was super informative and more than anything it gave me like the confidence that if he could do it I could do it too there was nothing you know, you realize, and that's just kind of a lesson in life. There's, we're all humans. Obviously, some of us are gifted and have different talents, but the truth is, is in a lot of things in life is like, if somebody else can do it, you can probably do it too, you know, in the right circumstance. And so I left there with a confidence I could do it. And it really wasn't that like at the time, I guess you're so naive when you're 17, you just really don't, you don't even really know what risk is. It just seemed like a pretty straightforward path. This is how I was going to get a loan. This is how I was. I didn't really need any money down. This is how I was going to fix up my house. I needed to find some students to lease it. This is where I got a lease form. And I was kind of off to the races. And a lot of it was just kind of figuring it out along the way. I, I make it probably sound a little easier, but I also don't remember, you know, maybe this is just how I'm built a little bit, but I don't remember feeling like I was taking a ton of risk. In fact, I it all felt pretty easy. And I remember telling people along the way, I'm like, I'm surprised not everybody does this. This, this is not very hard. And I remember always having that feeling like, why does not everybody do this? There's no money down loans. You don't need any money to buy these houses. You have to rent them for more than your expense. Here's how you take care of them. So anyway, that was kind of the start of it. Did you have fraternity brothers that were like, Chris, this is great. I want to do this too. Did anyone kind of tag along and follow in your footsteps? Not really any of my fraternity brothers, but there was a group of broader guys that I got to know. And there was probably four or five of us that were kind of the guys around TCU buying houses and figuring it out. And, and to this day, there's still like three or four of them. We remain we don't talk all the time. Some of them I haven't talked to in a while, but we all kind of stayed in touch even all these years later. And it was kind of a little fun group to be a part of the four or five guys around campus that were buying up rental houses while still in college. So I heard you also tell a story that there were no listings of available apartments online and you organized that at TCU. Tell me, by the time you graduated, you had like 12 homes. Is that right? Yeah, I had 12 properties. Some of them were duplexes. So I had a few more units than that. But yeah, we started rentbytcu.com. And again, 2004, 2005, like just to give listeners perspective, like Facebook was still not out, which when I tell people that, that 20 years ago, Facebook wasn't out, that people can't wrap their minds. But not only that, you didn't really get online to go look for houses. The way we were looking for houses or the way most people did was you drove down the street, you looked for a for rent sign, you called it and you leased it. And so first need that needed to be solved was how could I get everybody to aggregate all their houses onto one website so people didn't have to guess, you know, where houses would be? Or you would see like fraternity members pass the house down to the next generation in their fraternity. So it never hit the market. You also had all these owners that really didn't know the market. They, they were either parents whose kids had gone there, but they didn't sell the house after they left or they were kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so you would drive down streets and you'd have one three bedroom, two bath leasing for like 1200 a month. And then one to four houses down leasing for 1800 a month. And if you were asked why was there such a discrepancy, it was like, well, one knew the market better than the other. There really was not any 
magic to it. And so my pitch to people was one, let's make it easier for students to find your property. But two, if I can raise the rents on your rental property, there was a bonus system I had in place. And so essentially over the course of a few years, we got hundreds of homes on the website and I hired a few college students and we would lease houses all summer or really all throughout the year if kids would move in throughout the summer. And that was a great business. And again, lessons learned there that are still applicable today is you really get to know the market. You really get to know what your customers want, which are what students want. I really got to know what landlords wanted. And there was a point in time around TCU where there was probably not a house on 50 different streets that I didn't like have known by photo memory, knew who owned it, knew what at least for knew how many bedrooms it had and really mastered the TCU market in every which way you possibly could. I mean, I I really think there were two or three years there where probably nobody knew that market better than I did. And that is how you get good in real estate or really probably anything is you get to know the markets that you're investing in really, really well and, and, and understand how to learn them really, really well. And so, yeah, we started a leasing and property management business while we were in college. So did you study finance? Because I heard you mention you thought about becoming an investment banker, going to Wall Street. Obviously, the real estate started to take off. So that altered things. But you're basically running a business all throughout college while going to school. Talk to me when you graduated at 2008. That was a bad, bad time to be looking for a job. Bad time. I mean, real estate obviously started to, for some people, it was really bad. For some, if you had cash, it was good. Talk to me about in 2008 when you were graduating, what was going through your mind? So this sounds crazy, but I, again, you're right. I thought I was going to go to Wall Street. So I actually measured in finance and marketing. And this wasn't your question, but I actually think I got way more out of marketing than I got out of finance. But I thought I'd become an investment banker. I think maybe now I think tech is is the thing. But back then, like investment banking really was the thing. It was a high paying job. It was on Wall Street. It just seemed like the the best path forward to, again, make a lot of money. And you just saw people. It was almost like a sure career path that if you get good in investment banking, it opened up tons of doors to go make a lot of money somewhere. But also really was not taking into account that I owned all these houses. I had this business. I don't really know what I was thinking other than I thought, well, I'll just sell all the houses when it's time to leave and graduate. Well, that got derailed because I graduated in December of 2008, which was the worst economic time maybe in the country. I think October 2008 was like the worst stock market drop of our generation. And uh, every job hope that I thought I had disappeared, but I still had this business, this small little real estate rental company around the university and selling the homes off really wasn't an option. And so we kind of stuck with it and we... I got a line of credit right before the crash from Wells Fargo tied to uh, a bunch of the equity in my houses, which was a godsend, basically allowed me to pull on the line as cash. And before I knew it, foreclosures were hitting the market left and right. And we, I basically started buying rental houses or I basically started buying foreclosures down in the south of Fort Worth little brick homes, three bedroom, two bathroom brick homes that had been selling for call it 120 grand. We were buying them for forty, fifty thousand bucks, you know, a year later, and we'd we'd put some, uh, we'd update them a little bit, we'd paint them, we'd put in new carpet, maybe redo the foundation or whatever it needed, and then we were flipping them, turning around and selling them, and that was kind of what I did right out of college. 
When you say we, was it you and like the subs you were working with, or did you have a partner at that point that you were doing all this with? No, it was me and, and the subs and the, the folks I had. I didn't have a partner until a little bit later. So it was just me at the time. Wanted to touch back on Sam Zell. I know you said you didn't read a bunch of real estate books, but I think you read, what's his book? Am I being too subtle? I wanted to hear a little bit. I read of, that one. That's a great book. Highly recommend it. Sam Zell, such a character, was. But I wanted to hear a little about what you learned from Sam and some of the takeaways, just like how you've modeled your own real estate career based on what he's done. So I think it's it's pretty simple. The, the core tenets of what I've taken from Sam, who was just a legend and tragic to see him go this year, but he didn't develop. And he didn't develop because he basically just said, well, he said a few things, but he just said, there's so much risk that's out of your control. There are, so there's so many things that even when you're great, you can't control certain factors. And so even the best developers can really get annihilated at certain times in the market. You know, he basically said that as that basically like developers always imploded themselves because at the very, very top of every cycle, like everybody was adding new supply. And so that was really tough. And so like lesson one was there was it became apparent to me that although you can make money developing real estate, he, he had this quote that for most developers, half of the return is just the satisfaction of seeing a new project go from nothing to something, which is very true because I developed several projects and it was satisfying. But he basically just said, there's no reason to develop. It's way too risky. Uh, it's hard to build. You know, Obviously, there's companies that have done it, but it's hard to build a really great company just doing development. And he said, instead, you should just buy real estate that it's already existing. And you're really two inputs that you're solving for is like, what's my cost to buy this? And what is my cost to get at least up to a rate that's, that's acceptable? And those, that's really what you're solving for. And the other thing he talked a lot about was trying to buy into asset classes where new supply was going to be hindered or limited. And for me, when I looked around at what we're doing today, we, do, we buy Class B industrial real estate. You really can't rebuild it at all, especially in the cities that we're buying in. In fact, people are tearing it down to build other types of of projects. So I think if there was the lessons I learned, and I think these are timeless lessons, I don't think they ever go away, was don't develop, instead buy, and then try and look at buying things where there is not a lot of new supply of that product coming online at a fast pace, if at all. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. He also reminds me a lot of like Warren Buffett, just buying below replacement cost, buying below intrinsic value. That was one of his other key things was just like buy stuff that We'll touch on John Marsh, but like irreplaceable real estate. If you can buy irreplaceable real estate below the replacement costs, like kind of a no brainer. Yeah, I mean, that's spot on. And especially like in the cycle we're in right now, there's going to be so many opportunities to buy it fractions of what you could actually build new for. And that further makes the development industry, you know, you might not see development for another couple of years because of that. So let's touch on John Marsh. You said there's a couple other guys that have really built into you besides your father, and that that's John Marsh. Pete Chambers is another guy. Talk to me a little bit about Pete Chambers. I know came first. So let's touch on Pete, how you guys got connected, just the role of men and mentorship in your life. I had a guest recently that wasn't a big believer in mentors, that you could kind of figure this all out on your own, but I think you can save decades by finding the right people. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you just said it right now. I think one thing that's always come really natural to me before I even knew what a mentor was or that you called them mentors was there's all these people, no matter what you're trying to do, if it's build a real estate company, if it's be a good dad, if it's, you know, be better in your faith, whatever it may be, there's always, there's people around that have have already walked the walk and they've already done the thing successfully. And so for me, it's always been really natural to go, well, why wouldn't I just seek those people out and ask them how they did it? And not just how they did it, but what are all the mistakes you made along the way? And so, I mean, like from a business perspective, I think our business has been infinitely better today because of all the wisdom that we've gotten from people that have already built huge real estate companies and done it really successfully over multi-decades. And a lot of lessons, they're not, they're not short-term in nature. A lot of this stuff is timeless. And so for Pete, you know, Pete and I really, we met at the golf course years ago. He was really good friends with my father-in-law, but I think he saw in me basically this young kid that was trying to be a superstar entrepreneur And he basically saw the early signs of like, this kid is going to lose it all. And he's going to think that he's getting it all. Again, this goes back to what we talked about. 
I don't think anybody wakes up every day and goes, I'm going to make, I'm slowly going to destroy my life. They don't. They always are. I actually think most people are trying to better their life that day. Now, humans are messy, so it doesn't always look that way. But I think he saw this young kid that cared a lot about things that he probably would regret caring too much about. And so he, at an early age, like we just started talking a lot and he would, and to be honest with you, it's not like day one. I want to be really clear. Day one, it's not like he said these things to me and I was like, oh, you're right. In fact, I think the first like year or two of him saying it, I was like, I don't know why he keeps telling me this stuff. I mean, I get it, but like, that's for the birds. So lesson one was he was super consistent. He didn't just tell me something once and then expect I got it. And if I wasn't really listening, kind of give up on me and move to the next guy. He was super consistent in my life. And it's not like I wasn't listening or being rebellious. I just, again, when you're so in the trenches and you're so focused on something, be like, yeah, that's never going to happen to me. Like I'll always keep it all together. And then, you know, I think what happens is, is some of the things he was saying started to start materializing, coming true. It was like, oh shoot, there is something to this. And we built this incredible friendship and this incredible bond. And I think he would tell you, he's probably learned as much from me as, as I have from him in some ways. But for me, it was this clear realization of this is a guy that has walked the walk in so many facets of life that I would, I, I really admire. He's got great girls. He's raised three girls. He's got a, a wife that he loves and he's raised a great home. He did really well in his business and treated his people really well and was financially successful. He's super generous. He has a really strong faith. Like there are just all these components. And the other thing I've learned from him and from others is none of those things happen by accident. You know, what's funny about a lot of folks is they'll work really hard on their business and they'll plan really hard for their business and they'll do all this strategy and, and think all this. But then you ask them like, well, what's your strategy at home or what's your strategy with your kids or what's your strategy? And there really is no strategy. It's kind of like they'll wing all that, but they'll work really hard on their business. And what I found out from him and Marsh and several people were the folks that had a really well-rounded life put as much effort into every area of their life as they did their business. And I think if there's one thing I could say about the, the genesis of my relationship with Pete over the last 11 years, and again, we have lots of fun together. Or we travel now. To, I mean, we travel, we, we do a lot together, but the genesis of him and I's relationship is he's taught me the importance of investing in more areas of your life than just your business. And he's shown that to me in so many different ways. He spent hundreds of hours talking to me at my lowest and we don't have to go all into it, but I, you know, I've said it on other podcasts. Like I hit, I hit rock bottom at home, uh, in my marriage, things were not going well, all for the same reasons you could expect. And like Pete was also the person that was like, I'm here for you. You're not getting a divorce. I'm making sure you all stay together. I will be here for you no matter what. And I think a lot of men, whether it's with their wife or like any situation in their life, without Pete, I probably would have made decisions that would have impacted the rest of my life that I would later regret. And I think that goes to the importance of having, for me, men in my life that really didn't want to see me fail um, and really poured into me, even at my lowest. And it's made all the difference. You talked about a little bit about, you know, being at your lowest on the, uh, with Brent 
Bashor, Bishor, Bashor, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but it made a huge impact on me. I wanted to hear about the role of faith for you, how you got connected with John Marsh. And I know that he went through a period of his life where he was totally focused on business. He took a step back and he just devoted every, his, actually is his wife, devoted most, I don't know, I think he said four or five years of just like focusing on his marriage. So I wanted to hear how you and John got connected and a little bit about like the, the role of faith in your life and business career and maybe how it's changed your trajectory. Yeah. So I've always gone to church. I would, cons- I would have considered myself probably a Christian since birth, but I think what I really didn't have until the last four or five years is what I would consider like a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I think it's, there's one thing to be religious, which is singing songs and, and rituals and doing all this, but there's another to kind of, to kind of lay yourself down and go, there's this much bigger God in, and in, in Christ that has, that loves me for me and that, that created the world and created the universe. And, and it's very humbling to understand that the world does not revolve around you. And I think a relationship with any type of God, no matter what your religion is, should do that to you. And in a world today where we're so individualistic and we care so much about ourselves and we're at this peak me, me, me world, having faith in something much larger than you makes you realize like this is really not about you and you're a, a speck of dust flying through the universe. And, and it really humbles you to, to you, uh, you know, if that's the case, then, then what is my purpose here? And so I can get more into faith in a bit, but how I met John again um, this is something I think only God could provide for me is you have this developer in Opelika, Alabama, which is like the middle of nowhere in Auburn. And I had had another gentleman on the podcast, Bobby Feehan. And I just asked him at the end of our podcast, I said, hey, who's your favorite developer that I should have on? And he was like, this guy, John Marsh from Opelika, Alabama, you should talk to him. So anyway, we get in touch. And to be honest with you, I, I probably I put like no stock in this. I just thought another guy I'm going to meet, he's from this weird town in Alabama. And uh, we got on a pre-call to talk about the episode that I was going to do with him, which I'll usually do with people to gather some facts and get some interesting talking points. And he starts the phone call and he starts telling me this story about how 25 years ago, he was uh, locked in an attic and he was on the verge of committing suicide. Um, His wife was cheating on him with one of their employees. He was addicted to meth and like this story. And he was super vulnerable with this stranger, which immediately, what does vulnerability do? It let my guard way down. Because I think in the world we live in, especially men, They have it all buttoned up together. They project strength even when they're going through a tough time. And that's just kind of how we're raised is that's just how we're raised. And so it was this perfect timing. So we have this whole conversation and he tells me this incredible story of being broken in an attic to obviously he did not hang himself. He cleaned himself up. He found God. He reconciled with his wife. And 25 years later, they've led a ministry helping hundreds of couples across the country reconcile their marriages. And then at the very end of the call, he's like, well, how are you doing? And the truth is, I was like a week away from filing for divorce at the time. And I think I could have taken that moment to say, I'm great. And they just like hop off the call and we'll get, you know, we'll do our podcast and move on with life. But he kind of gave me the permission through telling of his own story For me to be like, hey, I'm actually really not great. Things are actually really shitty right now. The whole world probably thinks things are great because that's 
you know, we don't talk about our problems. There was a few people in my life that knew things were not good, Pete being one of them and a few others, but I just, I was pretty open with them. And I got to give him like a lot of credit. I mean, you talk about a guy that walks the walk. He goes, okay, don't do that. Get on the phone. Will you and your wife get on the phone with me and my wife tomorrow night, which would, this was a call was on a Thursday. So this would have been Friday. At the time I was not living at the house. And will you get on a call and, and we really don't want you to do this. So in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to call my wife who we're having a tough time. We're obviously at rock bottom and I'm going to convince her that the real estate developer from Opelika, Alabama is going to help save our marriage. And the truth of the matter is we got off the call the next night after two hours of them kind of pouring into us. And we at least got to a spot in that call. We're like, okay, we'll press pause. And the marshes and, and again, a few other folks in our life are just other examples of people that unselfish people who put their interests, who put our interests ahead of theirs and poured into us at a time when we really needed it. And years later, I can sit here and say, I can't imagine having made that decision. My relationship with my wife is extremely better in so many ways. And the truth is the hard, cold reality of all of this journey of, of learning is the man in the mirror was the biggest problem in my life and I couldn't see it for a long time. And I think that's the beginning for me of finding a relationship with Jesus Christ is you start to learn that the man that you're staring at in the mirror is actually the root of your problems, not everybody else and everything else. And that's why in a lot of the developing world, some of the poorest areas of the world is where Christianity is flourishing the most, where people have the least. And in Western societies where we, from a worldly view, have the most, uh, we're losing God at, at a rapid speed is because we have, as a Western society, basically built this common belief that we have it all and we don't really need a God. We don't need a God when you show up every day and you have air conditioning on at your house and plenty of food and you know, you're relatively safe and all these things, you start to build over time. Like, why do you need a God? Things are pretty good. And then you go to places of the world where it's really tough. And that's really all they have to lean on is, is God. And so anyway, it's been a humbling experience. And I share all that to say through John, through Pete, through several others, the core lesson that I think I've learned is one of like humility and realizing like, as much as I thought I had it all, I didn't. And the more I'm willing to let go and not control the things around me, life has seemed to settle down a little bit and it's not as, as tense as it once was. Again, it doesn't mean I don't want to go build a great business and have a lot of fun and meet a lot of great people. It's just not the end all be all anymore. Yeah. It just sounds like your priorities have shifted quite a bit. And I, for one, I just want to thank you. I want to thank John Marsh if he listens to this. Like you guys have made a big in impact on me as well. Just being open and honest and transparent about your stories. Like it's, I don't want to get too emotional, but it's like really been a big deal for me. So I want to say thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, and I think that's the gift of vulnerability is you don't, and especially with the internet and podcasts now, like you don't really know who you're reaching and you know, it's helped save my life. And, you know, I think we all have a story to tell. And I, if anybody's listening, I just give them permission. You don't have to go say it on a podcast, but if you're struggling with something like you won, you're definitely not the only person. Part of being vulnerable is you realize everybody else is actually struggling from something and that's okay. I think our, uh, pain is your friend in a lot of ways. It's, it's where you gain wisdom and it's where you learn a lot about life. 
is in your darkest moments. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a journey and I look forward to seeing where this life takes me. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think it unfortunately takes great suffering to take us to this point. You know, it did in John's case. It sounded like it, it did in yours. I really feel like John is criminally underrated. Like I wish he had a bigger following. And like, I just think that the guy's just an incredible man. He's definitely impacting a lot of different people, but I'd like to see more be touched by him. I think he will. He jokes, but he's like, being friends with you guys, it's changed my life. Every time we do a podcast and now thousands of new people learn who he is. And so he's one of the most special people you'll meet. And you talk about a guy that's got a heart of gold and really walks the walk. John embodies that in every uh, sense of the word. I had the same exact experience. Interviewed Bobby Fion, asked the same question, who should I interview next? He mentioned John and I was like, Opa, like a Alabama. But uh, yeah, you dig deep and it's like, wow, there's a wealth of wisdom in that guy. And for the record, he's an incredible real estate developer too. I mean, I think his the work he'll be known for, I think he'll definitely be known for his real estate, but he's, he's as talented as they come in the real estate world too. So he's, he's multifaceted. I don't know where we go from here. I wanted to talk a little bit about good to great but in the Fort Capital flywheel, like we haven't really touched on Fort Capital. We haven't touched on the podcast. You've got a lot going on. I wanted to actually, what I want to ask is in 10 years time, where do you see yourself still doing the podcast involved in real estate? Like, what do you want to be doing if we were to talk in 10 years from now? It's funny. I'm asking myself some of those same questions. Fort Capital is an incredible company. It's got incredible leadership. And I think the sky's the limit for what will be accomplished there. And, you know, we can talk about the flywheel and, and good to great and how that company's come to be. As far as the podcast goes, I love doing it. I mean, uh, I actually on, I think Monday was my five-year anniversary of doing it. I've met an incredible amount of people. I've learned a ton and I feel like we've just scratched the surface for what's possible. It's, it's generated opportunity for Ford. It's generated opportunity for my family and I. It's generated opportunity for the guests. The guests get a lot out of it. It's like a win-win all the way around. And look, it's kind of, I wouldn't say a hobby, but it's like my personal... I think if you looked at it over a body of 15 or 20 years, you'll just kind of be able to see this arc of like how I changed over time and the things that were important to me. And I think I'll be doing it in 10 years. I have no intentions of stopping. In fact, the plan for next year and, the, and, and going forward is to add more resources to it, build a team around it to, to help grow it. I've thrown a couple of events where I've gotten to get people together to gather that I've loved doing, bringing people I've met from the online world and, and meeting with them in person and different settings on different topics. I want to do a lot more of that. But I love investing. So it's it's something I've loved forever. I am thinking of a couple different ways in which I will continue that outside of Fort on a day-to-day -day basis. I have a lot of inspiration from folks that have, have done it before me. But right now I'm I'm really trying to think of what does that next 10-year vision look like? You know, Fort, I have not been the CEO now for four years. Like I said, it's one of the joys of my life. It's got incredible leadership. I've got an incredible partner there who's our CEO. And so it's given me the flexibility and the opportunity to kind of think about the next 10 years forever. That next 10 years was only at Fort. And so I'm kind of in a process right now. I've actually hired a coach that's helping me get some clarity around some things going on in my life. And, you know, maybe if we did this another year from now, I'd have 
maybe a greater vision or a, a better answer for what lies 10 years ahead. But what I can say now is I'm having a lot of fun. I love the podcast. I love hosting people. I'm building incredible network and, and I love the business that, that is Fort Capital. So what's an average day looking like for you? Is it mostly devoted to the podcast? Because you put out a lot of content, both on Twitter, the podcast, like, or is a lot of your time spent with Fort Capital still? Or is it a mix? It's probably a mixed bag. Not every week looks the same. Uh, I still meet with my partner every week. And then depending on what's going on in the business, if we're raising capital or we have some big need going on, there, there could be weeks where I'm highly focused on that. I have a great team with the podcast. So a lot of my time is either spent researching the guests or just recording. Most everything else is taken care of. But I would say, you know, uh, at least a fifth of my week goes there. I'm on the phone a lot talking to people and then I read a lot. I spend a lot of time just kind of reading different things and staying up to date and current. I like to invest, like I said, so allocating uh, some of the capital that, that I have made takes up some of my week, but I keep a pretty loose schedule now for the first time in my life so I can kind of work on what I want to work on. I have, I traveled quite a bit. I think one of the things about having a podcast and Twitter and maybe being a little more public facing is there's been a lot of opportunities to go to things. And so last year I was on the road quite a bit. I'm going to try and dial that back this year, but got to again, meet incredible people, go to some incredible events that I never imagined I'd be at. And so it's been great to kind of keep expanding my network, which has been a lot of fun. You mentioned a couple of things, keeping an open calendar and reading a lot, both two things that like were a Warren Buffett you know, kind of reminds me very much of Warren Buffett, like how he structured his own life. I forget what he read, 500 pages a day or something like that and kept a very open calendar. And yeah, it's, it's awesome. So Chris, this has been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure having you on here. What's for our listeners that want to find out more about you? I know Twitter, what, any other ways that they can get in touch with you? Yeah, you're an incredible host. I, I really will say this was this was one of my favorite interviews. You really did great research and I appreciate it. Um, the Fort Podcast is my podcast on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris, or you can check out Fort Capital at FortCapitalLP.com. Yeah, reach out. Would love to hear from you. Awesome. This has been great. I had another half a page of questions I could ask, but uh, I really appreciate your time. We'll do round two. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year and uh, best of luck to you in 2024. You too. Thanks, Patrick. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.